installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Elastiquick. Today, I'll be interviewing C. Ian Kyer about his book, The Ontario Bond Scandal of 1924, Reexamined. Ian Kyer is a lawyer, author, and historian. For more than 30 years, he practiced law with Faskin, a very prominent Bay Street firm. Ranked as one of Canada's top 500 lawyers, he now serves as corporate counsel for Broadridge, a multinational provider of services to the financial industry. Ian also has a PhD in history, and he has written histories of the Faskin law firm, the origins of the Toronto Transit Commission, and the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation, along with numerous biographies for the Dictionary of Canadian Biography and entries for the Canadian Encyclopedia. In my opinion, his fascinating book, The Fiercest Debate, Cecil A. Wright, The Benchers and Legal Education in Ontario, 1923 to 1957, is a must read for anyone interested in the evolution of post-secondary education in Canada. Ian, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The 1940 article in the Toronto Star referred to the 1924 bond scandal as, quote, the greatest political scandal in Ontario's history. Could you outline the basic elements of the scandal for our listeners? What we should realize is that there were, in fact, two scandals. There was the scandal that was alleged, it was alleged in 23, the trial was in 24, and it was about the purchase of Ontario issued duty-free bonds by Emilius Jarvis, working with the treasurer of the province of Ontario, Peter Smith. They purchased these bonds in England. Jarvis made $500,000 profit on the transaction, an enormous sum at the time. And the allegation was that he and Peter Smith had conspired to make the price that the province paid for these bonds high so that they could then split the profits. But the real scandal, when you look into the story, was how the case was investigated, prosecuted, tried, and the conviction that resulted, which was a wrongful conviction in my view. Smith and Jarvis ought not to have been tried and certainly should not have been found guilty. How did you become interested in writing the book? It started with the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. Robert Fraser the editor of the dictionary, often looks to me to write biographies of lawyers and business people. And he was looking for somebody to write a biography of Emilius Jarvis. Emilius Jarvis is a businessman who got involved in a legal proceeding. When he gave me the uh, assignment, he said, I'm particularly interested to see how you handle the Ontario bond scandal. Well, I guess this book is the answer to how I handle it, because I got so interested in the story. I didn't stop with the little biography. I continued to write the book. In the foreword to the book, your work is referred to as, quote-unquote, 
a first-rate example of the genre of legal history usually known as legal archaeology. What is legal archaeology, and why is it an effective way to study past legal cases? Okay, well, legal archaeology, as the name suggests, is digging into the facts of the case. So instead of simply reading the case and looking at it for the legal proposition for which it stands, you look at how did the case arise? What were the personalities involved? What was going on in society at the time? How did it influence the judgment? So by going in and looking at all of these different aspects of the case, you come to better understand the legal process and the strengths and weaknesses of, of our legal process, and also what influenced the final judgment. The book introduces us to a wide range of historical characters who all played a large role in Ontario politics and the legal community. Could you tell us about the co-accused, Smith and Jarvis, and then one of the prosecutors, James McGrewer? So Peter Smith was, I think, a sorry figure in a sense. He was a so-called progressive farmer. He had a farm in Stratford, Ontario, where he uh, raised purebred Holstein cows. Now, he had very little political background. He had served as the clerk uh, for the local township uh, before he ran for office. He was one of the, the farmers who came together to create the so-called UFO party, the United Farmers of Ontario. And they ran against the Conservatives and the Liberals in the 1919 election. He found himself elected. When, as it happened, the UFO formed a coalition with the Labour Party. They had the majority in, in the, the parliament or in the legislative assembly. They needed a treasurer. Because the UFO were a group of farmers, they had no lawyers, they had no business people, no money men involved. So Peter Smith, the progressive farmer from Stratford, found himself as the treasurer of Ontario with no financial background whatsoever. That unfortunately turned out to be a costly situation. Now, Emilius Jarvis, in a sense, was the opposite. He was very knowledgeable about business. Uh, he had a merchant bank and a stock brokerage known as Emilius Jarvis and Company. And he was a, probably one of Canada's most important business people of the day. He had been responsible for the consolidation of the BC salmon packing industry that created the BC Packers Association. He was also responsible for the consolidation of the Canadian steel industry to create what is what came to be known as Stelco, the steel company of Canada. But in addition to that, he was very well known and respected as a yachtsman. Uh, in 1923, he became the uh, life member of the Royal Canadian Yacht Club. He had won 300 yachting races. And in addition, he raised what they called hunter-jumper horses. These are horses that rode to the hounds, you know, jumping over uh, barriers and so on as they uh, chased after these, uh, the fox. So he was a very prominent figure. And interesting, also one of the leaders of the anti-temperance movement in Ontario. Ontario had passed laws uh, restricting the production and sale of liquor and uh, he didn't think that was right. So he was one of the people, as was his lawyer, I.H. Helmuth. They were leaders of the anti-temperance movement. The young man who led, led the prosecution in the sense of preparing the case and doing all of the work 
was a fellow by the name of James McCrewer, recently returned uh, from having fought in the First World War. He was a young lawyer. He worked with uh, Norman Tilley and James McGregor Smith, two more senior lawyers, in putting forward the case. But it was really McCrewer who was uh, the driving force in terms of preparing the documents and so on. Anyway, he had been called to bar in 1914, but as I say, he had spent time in the Canadian Army in the First World War. And he was primarily the person who prosecuted people for temperance violations and for securities fraud. And in this case, he was going against the leader of the anti-temperance movement and alleging sock fraud. He would later, by the way, become a very important judge. He was, had a nickname, by the way, of Vinegar Jim, because he was a dour Scottish Presbyterian teetotaler. Not a happy, joyful man, but, uh, but very effective as a lawyer. Politics played an outsized role at every step in this case. In many respects, the case illustrates the need for independence at the level of police investigation, prosecution, and adjudication. What does this case teach us about some of the essential elements of the rule of law? Okay, well, I tell you, it teaches us many lessons. This is a case, if one were teaching a course in criminal law, you might very well take this as an example of how badly things can go when the rules are not followed. First, as you mentioned, there is supposed to be independence in the criminal investigation uh, or or the investigation of crimes. There's not supposed to be any political influence. But here, the allegations of crime were raised during the political campaign of 1923. When Howard uh, Ferguson and the conservatives won that election, they then proceeded to uh, have Billy Price a lawyer appointed as the treasurer for Ontario, and to have an investigation carried out through the legislative a committee, sitting committee of the legislature. And Peter Smith was charged before a policeman had looked at any of this evidence at all. This was all, he was actually arrested in the legislative assembly during the hearings of this sitting committee. So it evidenced certainly both political influence and a rush to, uh, to bring a prosecution. Now, there were then subsequent uh, police investigations, but they had a purpose in mind. At one point, uh, McCrewer explained to the premier of the province that he was uh, frustrated because he hadn't been able to find any evidence to prove the case that had been alleged against Smith and Jarvis. But that didn't deter them from going forward. It just increased their efforts to look for, for evidence. So... We then have the charges brought. Again, now, there's supposed to be independence when the office of the attorney general looks at the charges that have been brought by the police. They're supposed to bring a dispassionate uh, view of this, assessing whether truly a crime has been committed and whether it ought to be prosecuted. But in this instance, because it was suggested that the uh, office of the attorney general, which was led by a friend of uh, and a former crewmate of um, of Jarvis, Edward Bailey. So it was said, okay, well, we can't have the Attorney General's office look at this because they are biased. We will look at this. And so we have the Premier uh, and the Treasurer working with uh, young Jim McCrewer to decide whether or not to proceed, which, of course, they decided to do. Again, a lack of independence. Then, from the time when those charges were laid to the time when the trial was done was a matter of months. 
during which time one of the defense counsel died. But did it slow down the move to the trial? Not at all. In fact, the judge sped up the time for trial, saying, oh, well, it's unfair to the defendants to have this cloud hanging over their heads. But they didn't have time, proper time to prepare. So uh, then we have a judge uh, who is uh, Richard Meredith, who is sitting in this. Richard Meredith happens to be the brother of the former uh, leader of the Conservative Party in Ontario uh, and has strong links to the Conservative Party, which is making these allegations against the United Farmers of Ontario. So he had a conflict, but again, that doesn't matter. As well, his brother, a younger brother, was the uh, president of the Bank of Montreal. And the Conservatives were of the view that the Bank of Montreal ought to have actually conducted the purchase of these uh, bonds in England rather than Amelia Jarvis. So there were conflicts galore with the judge who, in fact, conducted the trial as if he wanted to be sure that the defendants were found guilty. So it is truly an example of poor investigation, prosecution, and trial. And then to make matters worse, when it went on appeal, the appeal judges, uh, when you read their judgment, seem to be more concerned about preserving the reputation of Richard, uh, Richard Meredith than, in fact, rendering a just verdict. So it is truly a sad uh, chapter in Ontario legal history. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that this uh, was a trial motivated by politics uh, more than rule of law, that's for sure. Um, throughout the book, you explain the legal proceedings in their sociopolitical context, and you refer to Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame and his investigation into the wrongful conviction of Oscar Slater. How does this wrongful conviction in Scotland shed light and give us context on the Ontario bond scandal? Jarvis and Smith were found guilty of conspiracy to defraud the Ontario government by a poorly, poorly instructed jury. But that happened in, in 1924. Now, in 1925, one of the co-conspirators, a fellow by the name of A.H. Peppel, had been in the United States. He was successfully extradited, and he was put on trial in 1925, and he was found not guilty. And so that started people's pushing to have the original uh, conviction of Smith and Jarvis expunged. And we had very prominent people on all political stripes pushing for that. But it was unsuccessful. They had an unsuccessful appeal, etc. The politicians didn't want to, to interfere with this judgment. So people were despairing. Then in 1927, in England, Oscar Slater was finally, after almost 20 years in prison, was released. Uh, and the person who had pushed and helped get him released was, in fact, Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. When this news arrived in Ontario, it gave new hope to the people who were pushing to get Smith and Jarvis exonerated. And so it, it, in a sense, acted as an inspiration to them because it demonstrated that even though it may take a long time, it is possible to have these things uh, overturned, justice rendered. So in your opinion, what went wrong with the case? What happened to the main characters? And what can we learn from the Ontario bond scandal 100 years later? What went wrong is almost everything. Um, so, I mean, I think really it, it's a demonstration of how 
politics can distort the legal process. Because we had allegations made during a political campaign, which were uh, inappropriately investigated, charges laid when they were really, with very little evidence to support the charges. And it was all done on a rushed basis. And the trial judge, unfortunately, had his own prejudices and uh, had his own agenda. So all of those things contributed to this. I think there are a number of lessons involved. It really does emphasize the need for independence and thorough investigation, especially business crimes. From the outside, you looked at this and you said, well, here is Jarvis making $500,000 profit on this transaction with the government. Surely something is wrong. When you actually look into the facts, you do that thorough investigation, you discover that it was an accident that he ended up making this much money. Because as it happened, the grand trunk bonds that had been issued during the First World War, federal government refused to honor the bonds when they acquired the Grand Trunk Railroad. And the people who had bought government bonds in Canada thought, oh my goodness, you know, bonds are not worth anything. And so they sold them cheaply just to get rid of them. So a thorough investigation would have brought that out, but they didn't do that. They didn't certainly take the time to understand the finances of the, of the transaction and how it actually worked. So that's part of it. Obviously, the political influence throughout the process was, was wrong. The need for unbiased judges, uh, very important. One of the, the things I, I'd mentioned that the, in the Peppel trial in 1925, that Peppel was found not guilty. Richard Meredith had, a, had chosen himself to, he was the chief justice, so he got to appoint the judges. He chose himself to sit on that one. And the defense counsel moved to have him recused on the basis that he had evidenced uh, prejudice in the first trial and after that uh, trial. And in fact, he, he did have to recuse himself. And the other judge, uh, a more balanced judge, came in, and I think a proper verdict was rendered. So all of these safeguards that we put in place, they are, they're not just nice things to have. They are essential to the legal process functioning properly, and they were lacking here. In terms of what happened to the people, Peter Smith is the one I feel most sorry for uh, because he, he went from being a prosperous farmer to losing his farm, his reputation, uh, his, his wife. He died a pauper, insufficient funds to pay off his debts. He was really a broken man after this. And he spent uh, almost two years in Kingston Penitentiary uh, following this, had health issues and so on. Very sad story. Now, Emilius Jarvis uh, also suffered in the sense that when he went into this, he was a wealthy person. He had an office building at the corner of King and Bay. He had a nice home on Prince Arthur Street. He ended up having to sell both of them to pay the fine. I haven't mentioned the fine yet, but they were fined $600,000. Even if they had made a profit of $500,000 on the transaction, they, they, they said, well, it's not just getting the money back. You know, you have to, in fact, find them. So they had a fine of $600,000. Now, on appeal, it was reduced but to $200,000, but still a very large amount of money. So he had to sell his office building, had to sell his home. He moved to his horse farm in, in uh, Aurelia. I, I mean, excuse me, Newmarket. But um, he lost that. And he then spent 14 years of his life fighting to uh, have his reputation uh, reinstated. Um, so he also suffered. Uh, but not quite to the extent that Peter Smith had done. He had uh, some influential friends who helped him over the uh, 
these times. As a final question, I'd like to ask you how the study of history has influenced your legal practice and how it gave you the insight and perspective necessary to re-examine the 1924 bond scandal. I mean, I did a PhD in history, and many people say to me, those were wasted years. And I say, no, no, absolutely not. History is an excellent preparation for legal practice. It, I mean, it teaches you how to marshal facts, to present evidence both orally and, and in, in writing, to sit and, and evaluate and analyze situations, come to understand human nature. I think it is a very good preparation. Now, I wouldn't recommend you do a PhD as you're beginning to doing a law degree, but it's certainly I think history is an excellent preparation. Now, as well, though, one of the reasons why I wrote this book and why I think – I say to people that I'm not the first person to study the Bond scandal, but I think I may be the first person to truly understand it – is because it was a complex financial transaction with multiple stages involving Canadian, U.S., and British currency uh, done through a number of different uh, stages and, and cities and so on. So one of the reasons I think why – the jury came to the wrong verdict because they didn't understand the business transaction and what was really going on. And the one advantage of my both my legal training and history training, but also the fact that I work for a financial services company and work with financial transactions all the time, is I understood what was really going on. Well, I think your background is a testament that education is always a good investment. It leads you down different roads and you were able to shed light on something. This is just a fascinating story in the history of Ontario and in the history of the country. Um, and I do have to uh, remark that preparing for this interview, of course, we've discovered that we are long lost cousins, that we are related <laughs> and that we're both uh, interested in legal history and we've practiced law. And, you know, it's just been absolutely fascinating making this connection. And, and I've read your work for years. And to think that we're actually connected in that way, I have found absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's a small world in some respects. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for joining us today. My guest today has been my cousin, Ian Kyer. He is the author of The Ontario Bond Scandal of 1924, Reexamined, published for the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History by Irwin Law in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society and the great work that it does. Please follow us on social media as well. We appreciate likes and shares. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on January 24th, 2024. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team. Mm -hmm.